Welcome to Oops All Monsters, the deadly unserious show about creatures, cryptids, and curiosities curated by two weirdos from wild and wonderful West Virginia. That weirdo with me when he's not trapping unsuspected wine critics in barrels of 72-year-old whiskey is not Gavin, but instead in a total change of format, our lovely friend of the show, Phil Keeling from pixel lit phil how are you doing today it's nice to talk to you i'm i'm doing great i'm i'm a a long time fan first time caller <laughs> major i was almost tempted from greenville south carolina <laughs> is is you're in greenville is yeah. where you are that's cool that's one of the places in south carolina i know is a place it is it is um, it is indeed a, ball, a place about all i can say yeah yeah that's it's it's a lovely place um uh, but I would, I, I cannot lie. It is definitely, you roll your eyes when you hear one of those tourism board things where they're like the, the South Carolina's little undiscovered town or whatever, <laughs> but, but it really is. It's one of those yeah. things that you, people you'll go, have you, you heard about Greenville? You ever? And people go, Oh, you've got to go to Gre- Greenville's wonderful. And you go, okay, whatever. And you show up and you're like, Oh, actually this place does kick ass. That's cool. So well, that's fantastic. I is uh, is one of your jobs specifically in Greenville, or do you live there for another reason? Because I do not remember since um, you you've been around different places, and so have I. Yeah, since, yeah. Uh, we I, I to, came here for we a job. Scad yeah, together. Yeah, I, I came here for a job. Actually, how it happened was my my fiance and I met. Literally, we we went on our first date the week before quarantine for uh, the pandemic kicked Whoa. in. And, wow. and so she had family uh, who lived in Pickens, which is this tiny little town in the foothills up here in South Carolina. We were living in Atlanta at the time. And she said, well, okay. we're both working from home. So there's this single wide up there that nobody's in. Uh, we could just play house for a little while and try this relationship out and, and isolate. And it was 40 minutes from Greenville. So on the weekends, we'd go to Greenville uh, because it had a waterfall and it's downtown. And that was something you could <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And so we were just like, it's a, this opportunity popped up to come here for work. And I was like, yeah, let's let's just do that instead. Because neither of us were exactly well, grouping uh, in Atlanta. Well, good job on um, not becoming a Stephen King novel and testing out cohabitation uh, all at once with the with the uh, with the quarantine thing because I could imagine that not going super well. It you know? ab- it um, absolutely could have could have gone very badly. My wife know, literally yeah, ju- just told me she said I, I on the way there I thought this guy could kill me. I was like, yeah, you yes. Yeah, it could go great or Jack could become a very dull boy. You right, know, exactly. you, know, you, never, you never yeah, you never know. Um I I actually had uh, well, you know what? Now that I, I, it's actually a lot more similar than I was thinking in my mind with my partner and I, they were we had but we had been together for a long time, but not having done cohabitation, where um, she was on the west coast in Los Angeles where I had been living, and then I came back here, ye- you know, years uh, prior to help out with family stuff here in uh, Morgantown, and then. Um, COVID started to get really, started to get really bonkers and LA particularly, and you know, basically most of the big metropolitan cities got really wackadoo there for a a while. And in the, the, in the rising boiling, um, scenario of that, she found herself motivated to, to GTFO. And uh, one thing about the, um, relatively rural mountains is they're really good at an emergency. (laughs) If, oh, if that emergency has to do yeah. with getting the fuck away from people, yeah, um, it's kind of why mountain people exist because they 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 would rather deal with the hardship of isolation than the hardship of uh, other souls being. Around. Oh, absolutely! It's a long, proud tradition, uh, especially <laughs> in the Appalachians. Yeah, we know all about that. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, uh, that's uh, well, that's very interesting. So, um, so I obviously. Um, Phil, you and I are familiar each other, with each other because we we were friends and had a ton of mutual friends when we went as together as grad students. Yes. The bizarre culture of grad students at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia, where it's yeah. also very hot, but definitely not the Appalachian Mountains. I'll say no, that. no, far totally from different it. vibe. Yeah, yeah that um, that petri dish of of geeks and film nerds. It was beautiful. <laughs> 
Yeah, and um, and subsequently, uh, you and um, multiple entry onto the show collaborator um, of what Kevin Earhart. I don't know if he does, uses his name on the show. He must, but yeah. Ke- like Kevin, uh, your co-host and co-producer of your show, make. Pixel Lit, if somehow anybody on our show still is not familiar with you guys, where you (laughs) review the novelizations of video games, which is, I would describe from your perspective, maybe hit or miss with um, a kind of, I don't know what you would describe your hit rate at, because the language that you guys use, tell me how, if you would describe this as accurate, is kind of, can be very squishy when it comes to you know, thumbs up or thumbs down about a particular book. <laughs> There's a bizarre amount of nuance when you guys say that, like, oh, okay, this scholastic book is is less trash than right. than than that Dead Space book or whatever. There's a lot of relativity going on. Is it is that accurate? I would I would argue yes. I think I think that's what happens when you get a couple of film school guys talk to because at first it was just this this niche that I thought of that I said no one's doing this this could be funny and weird and just different enough that we could you know carve out our own little hillside there uh but then it purely through coincidence it came to pass that Kevin and I were both very interested in adaptation and how yeah. things are and 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 so suddenly we're having actually really nuanced in-depth conversations about the 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 fucking you know guitar hero novelization or something I wish that existed <laughs> it does not um, I was I was gonna totally go on faith that that was a thing that was real <laughs> and that you would reviewed it like I I definitely listened to episodes of your show. I listened to the most recent episode that I believe um, Hot Cider was on. I'm sorry, I forget his his actual yeah Hot Cider uh, yeah name, yeah. but um, that was that was a very entertaining one. But I don't catch every episode. And if you had told me that you had recently done the Guitar Hero book, I'd have been like, "Wow, what the fuck is the Guitar Hero book about?" I, I, well, that's <laughs> just it. We're like, it's not enough because uh, at first, obviously, our, our our more popular ones are the ones that. Uh, are, are, have franchises like Halo that are just like yeah absolutely they've got the big fan base and everything which makes sense but uh, more and more the way we've been going into it is we're looking for the really outlier kind of things like um, Shadowkeep which was the first ever video game novelization book about a game that no one knows anymore that does not exist uh, and we got to talk to the guy who adapted it, and uh, he's like the king of a- a- adaptations, Alan Dean Foster. And he yeah, wrote- Al- no, I I did I did listen to I did lis- listen to that one specifically because Alan Dean Foster is such a, a draw. In, oh, absolutely. The original, the original Aliens um, adaptations. I mean, he's yeah. I like it. It is such a small sliver of the of a Venn diagram inside of. Um, ca- lowercase l literature. Right. That you, there's there there really is a pantheon of a handful of people that you can get to come on a podcast and actually talk about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, Alan Dean Foster is great, but it is it is a very very you know it's like talking to like a the greatest billiards player in the world. You know what right. I mean? It's like very famous under an extremely rarefied set of circumstances. That's exactly <laughs> it. Any anytime I find myself describing what we do to people who aren't part of either of our subcultures and uh and I'll and I'll I'll use examples like that and I'll go well we we interview people and and you remember Alien he wrote the he wrote the movie novelization for Alien and people always kind of react so they go oh, oh okay yeah. so it's, it's a okay. polite but genuine oh that's that's <laughs> vaguely impressive yes that sounds Yeah like yeah 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 it's like when you're in college and your aunt says like he's so creative right it's <laughs> Where you, they're really trying to give you the most direct compliment that they can, and yeah. it, it, they're they're instead dragging your scrotum over like a weak fire. Absolutely, it's just I, like I was like, bless their heart, on. they are trying, you know. But man, <laughs> yes, yeah. And that's how you can tell Phil is in the quote unquote real South because he just used the um, prominent Deep South euphemism, bless their heart, <laughs> which is. Which doesn't quite get as far up here to West Virginia on the on the border with the with the Yankees, but um, it, yeah, it, you're, it, you're, you're the in farther an down spot you go up there. Yeah, I well, the thing is, in Morgantown, we're definitionally um, the North it, it, because of a thing that 
a lot of people don't like to remember from their history books called the Civil War. Right. And it is there. It, West Virginia is by definition a Yankee state, but we get to we get to enjoy none of the privileges of being from a Yankee state, but we get to enjoy, enjoy all of the disparagement and stereotypes of uh, the Deep South and Appalachia. It's wonderful. That's so funny because <laughs> I never, I didn't know that. And I always thought it was funny because uh, whenever I listen to the show, uh, I'm reminded, because I went to school in Western Pennsylvania in the Rust Belt. And yeah, I, I'm reminded yeah. that, that that as of the places that I have called home, you and I probably have more in common with the Rust Belt part of my life than uh, yeah, the absolutely. Deep South. Yeah, which is which is fascinating. And that you guys, I remember specifically, both you and Kevin were riffing on that in the Hot Cider episode because yeah. <laughs> you guys were talking about being from the very not related parts of Pennsylvania. Very much um, so. You know, very Eastern so. Pennsylvania and Western Pennsylvania on a lot of levels could not be more different. Um, also, you know, it depends on how close you are to one of those cities. Yes. Um, but yeah, have you ever, are you familiar with the um, proposed uh, cologne, colony or commonwealth called Westylvania? Is, is this a thing that you're aware of? Because no. you know, feel, feel, feel free to Google it real quick. It was yeah. a proposed, it was a proposed colony in the, um, I believe seven, I believe late 1700s that essentially would have been a state like imagine the shape of California but a mirror image where the sock goes the other way, like Holy down to the left cow. instead of down to the right. And essentially it's everything. And I'll describe this to the, for the listener. It's essentially Pittsburgh and below of, of, of Southwestern Pennsylvania. And ah. then scoops out nearly all of West Virginia, except of some of the nonsensical panhandle shit that doesn't make any sense anyway. Right. And then the lower, East, the southeastern part of Kentucky, which in my mind is actually a much more culturally contiguous entity than than what we have in um, Pennsylvania, West Virginia and Kentucky as it is. Uh, Westylvania is one of those odd, like I, I want to get a high quality map of it and put it on my wall Absolutely. because, uh, because it, it has a, it has an internal logic to it that those people got that like n the actual reality of the world will never get close to grasping. Um, I love that it go from, from Katanning all the way down to Southeastern Kentucky. Holy crap. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Culturally speaking, for those of us who spent a lot of time in Western Pennsylvania, yeah. it has yeah. way more in common with like West Virginia and that sort of thing than 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 Philadelphia, for example. Yeah, when you when you think that Pennsylvania is just a hilarious name for a character with bad teeth on Orange is the New Black, yeah. that is not that Pennsylvania is basically like West Westylvania the person. That, that is, is it is it, it's truly what it is. Well, we have marinated in the Marin to uh, a, a deeper degree than even Gavin and I usually do on some occasions. <laughs> it's the audience doesn't necessarily know that because I end up like cutting cutting so much of our um, ramblings and avunc avuncular nonsense out of the show. But I should get to I, we should get to the business because we have some big chunky topics to discuss. Yes, we do. Um, so I'm going to do this a little bit of the scripted bit, and we'll hit v villainous vocabulary and see if it stays in the show. So yeah. <laughs> we are here to, as we always are, delight and edify you with tales of mysterious monsters from mythology, film, literature, TV, as well as gaming from the console to the tabletop and beyond. On a rotating basis, each of us brings a monster into the shop. Reminder, check out the Instagram. It's what you think it is. And before we get into the meat of the show, we like to go into the rare and divergent parts of the English language that we like to call... And there's just a sting that goes there, and Gavin and I are in the habit of just, like, like singing the sting. And then we always cut, we always cut that out. Villain's vocabulary. And the piece of vocabulary that I thought um, might entertain you today, Phil, is a word called Arenaceous. Arenaceous. Yeah. It's spelled like the um, Celtic female name Aaron, mm -hmm. followed by Anaceous. E-R-I-N-A-C-E-O-U-S. Um, feel free to make a guess if you want, but I won't uh, make you play a game if that's Arenaceous. not your current mood. 
I mean, you're never gonna in million million years get it, so just go for the. Laugh. I can't imagine it's the obvious. It has something that's like just tenacious in an Irish way, like put a whiskey in you and you're ready to <laughs> nice, fight off. A, yeah, you got a little bit too much Jameson in here, being a little bit arenaceous tonight. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I no, would, that, that can't be it. Yeah, it, I think if that was true, it would have somehow joined the Urban Dictionary of our common lexicon. But no, arenaceous is of or relating to hedgehogs. <laughs> of or relating to hedgehogs. Uh, do you, do I I don't have the, score the etymology on this one. I, I don't have the etym- I don't have the et- etymology in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I'll admit that I pulled out my 100 weird words at, from parade.com and just grabbed the first one that felt That's like a, a chuckle and and here we are. Arenaceous of or related to hedgehogs. So if if you dear listener um run a hedgehoggery of some kind <laughs> Or are some kind of Sonic the Hedgehog um, furry? You can steal that for your next username on TikTok or whatever you got. Aaronaceous. Amazing. Um, fa- fantastic. And that's about as complicated as I like that segment to be. So <laughs> um, today we are going to we're going to skip the intro to the topic of the imagine if you will section Mm -hmm. because we need some of that runway to get to this topic um the audience will already know what the topic is but the top phil i specifically thought of you when i i thought of this topic and then i thought who the fuck do i know might already have this like kind of half cocked in the chamber of their flintlock pistol and i thought well I've been looking to have Phil on anyway. I'll sh- take a shot in the dark and maybe um, this is one he will know because my guess would be that Phil's very familiar with the thing uh, of the John Carpenter variety. Yes. Um, which you've confirmed is the case. So, and you're, and you're a literary sort. So it seemed that it seemed that that Venn diagram might prove a shade of purple. So um, can you tell me, what is the not? What is the novella? Who goes there? Don't worry, I have all of the metadata about it. If you <laughs> if you're worried about getting the facts, but what is who goes there? Uh, who goes there is a novella uh, by uh, I always want to say Joseph Campbell. It's but it's it's John Campbell. It's John. Yeah, it's John Campbell. Yeah. I think maybe it's John Campbell Senior or something. Sometimes they're junior okay junior john campbell jr who wrote it under a pseudonym because he was actually the editor of the magazine he was publishing it smart very Um, smart but anyway i interrupted you as soon as you said uh any anything (laughs) it it begins note or merit (laughs) uh yeah and it's it's uh it was written in the 30s uh as i recall and it is uh it is the foundation upon which uh the thing from another world and later john carpenter's the thing um, were uh, uh, done. Uh, it was and and what's funny is that I have never seen the thing from another world. But what I've always heard, and I did, I have read this book, uh, but it was years and years ago. And and the details that I distinctly remember, and from what I re- uh, remember other people saying all the time, is that uh, interestingly enough, John Carpenter's the thing. It's actually way more faithful to uh, the novella than. Uh, uh, thing from another world. Yeah. Yes. And, and this is something that we're going to go over, um, which is having, I, did, I, it was one of those things that I had in my pocket um, to, it's like, Oh, I should read that because I'm such a thingophile, I guess is a, a, a term of art. I'm going to coin right now that, you know, and I just didn't get to it. It's one of my favorite things about doing this show uh, is that it gives me an excuse to go to the back of the cluttered drawer and go like, oh, I actually should do that thing I've been saying would be a good idea yeah. for seven years. I actually should read Who Goes There and not just like, um, you know, pontificate about it pointlessly. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 when I did, I was I was truly shocked how much on some case, some occasions line for line pulls were from the 1938 uh, novella into the John Carpenter version Uh, characters with the same name and the same job, literally doing and saying the same thing pulled from the story. I was not expecting that. I was expecting that some of the essential, uh, you know, the, I was, I was expecting things like, okay, there's a 
the concern of that this thing is inside of my cohorts and comrades, and I have to go through some mechanism of determining which ones are real and which ones are thing. I thought that would be the part that translate translated. I didn't think it would be that and so much, uh, so much other DNA of the story down to exact lines. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I, we'll cover that more specifically later on because, um, so who's goes there? Like I said, is, um, by John W Campbell jr. It was actually published a bunch of different times, but it is, um, it's publication history describes it as a 1938 science fiction horror. And there's some confusion because it actually has been published in uh, versions that have some minor differences. There's like a really short version. There's a regular version, which I'm pretty sure is the version that I read for uh, for this. And there is a super elaborate version that has been um, recollected and reinstated and published as an entity called um, Frozen Hell. Colon, the thing from another planet that I have not read because apparently it reinstates a bunch of um, scenes and maybe even chapters from his original manuscript that he was trying to get out for forever. And then in the interim, he did the smart move of becoming a publisher of his own fucking magazine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's like, way you know, one of the, one of the great great ways to be a working actor is to become a producer. Yeah. (laughs) For instance, is uh, actually make your own shit and cast yourself. Amazing. You know, the Ghostbusters model works. Right. Um, Funny that. (laughs) Yeah. It's weird. When you have the means of production, you can kind of determine, um, a lot of things about your own fates. Odd. So, uh, but that was only published for the frozen hell version was only published in 2019 and, um, audiences, I may tease that maybe I'll do something with that version. Once I get my, uh, hands on that copy, I might, I, I don't know. I might do something weird and creative that you guys will get to consume. We'll see. I, I only found but, out about it in research for this episode and I am absolutely ordering a copy. So yeah. Yeah. Really. Well, that's, here's the, well, that's what I, that, you know, that's what I, <laughs> I love this show. I love making this show, which is sounds like a self-aggrandizing thing to say. But I mean, I, I mean, ex- experientially, I love making the show because it actually does cause me to take my ADHD ass brain and go and do the homework that I yep. always think I should be doing. Like, well, you got to come up with something for this week. So watch something or read some shit. And then even if I only watch something and it's like, now I got to read 10 things about that fucking thing. And <laughs> it causes me to actually become someone who knows too much about these topics as someone that just kind of like, um, I don't know, has a, has a, it's, it's amazing how much more in depth you can know on a subject that you think, you know, when you are forced to go do homework as, as a, as a avocation. Oh, just 100%. And and, I mean, and honestly, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the motivations for my show and my writing and everything. I have learned to use my ADHD to my benefit. Uh, I am am not medicated for it. Maybe I should be, but I've learned how to trick my body into working for me instead of against me. And it's working out pretty good. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I, I would purport that, um, podcasting and related radio phenomena, radio mediums and media are very good for the neurodivergent brain in the sense that you must get it done. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can't take the painting and languish over it for seven years and then leave it in a barn because you, an episode has to come out or else yeah. you don't have a show. Exactly. So, um, and, and more intelligent people than I have, have made, you know, like Jesse Thorne, um, pro, uh, prominent, uh, you know, radio's sweetheart has, uh, has, has talked about that extensively. And he talks about it by talking about how Terry Gross said it, where you're just like, well, you know, you make the show and it's just radio. It's as good as it is. And then you move on to the next one. I'm like, yep. that's fantastic. You know, the, the you've got to inverted- you've got to be the- finished at a certain point. You can't just do yeah, it. Forever. The, the, in- in- the inverted pyramid of total psychic pressure that put po- pointed down at your brain to make something that is perfect, quote unquote, is out the window. It's, yeah. it's not allowed in the room when you have to publish tomorrow. So um, it's one of the, it's one of the great things about doing uh, shows like this. But with that, with that aside, um, what was your experience of the novella itself of who goes there? 
um, in reading it from what you can, from what you can recall. And I've, re I've read it in a very fresh way in the past few days. So I won't hold you to it. If you're, you know, if you're grasping at themes, that's, you know, the, what it, we can come at it from two directions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I remember the most about it was basically what you already said, where it, it, it was striking at how much of it was like, Oh, this is, directly from the horse's mouth when it comes to uh, the film adaptation that I'm most familiar with. And I think most people are more familiar with um, at least of a certain generation. But what also struck me as funny was how very of its time it seemed at the same time. Uh -huh. a, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. There's a very old fashioned fifties style sci hard science, science fiction aspect mm -hmm. to a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so and again, the, it, it, it does translate very well to a 1950s um, version, as as we'll get to in The Thing from Another World. But it's it's almost hard to believe that it's a 1938 story that he probably even wrote prior to that. You mm -hmm. know, that it's kind of like a, you know, the Third Reich wasn't even something that a lot of people were worried about. <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, you know, like, I don't even know if in August of 1938, Jesse Owens would have, uh, you know, kicked the Nazis asses in the Olympics or not. I, I'm not exactly sure. So we're, you know, you're in the quote unquote modern world, but you're, you know, you're, you're in that, um, you're in that bridge period between the two wars that define the mentality of the boomers in the thing from another world, uh, early 1950s generation. And so what you do have in terms of quote unquote, 1938 science fiction, it's like a fuckload of chemistry and talking about radios and, yeah. and, um, <laughs> an astounding amount of extrapolation from the scientific knowledge available at the time is what I kept. I was what I kept thinking is, holy shit, this, you know what I mean? It, it almost has that kind of Jules Verniness to it where you're like, you got a lot of fucking shit, right? And the, the stuff that you say, that's a little bit like, well, science isn't going to play out that way. You can, you can more than forgive it because of how competent everything else is about the story. Yes. Um, particularly on, at least on the science side. So your main care, you know, your main characters have, um, skills in me, you know, your main guy, the McCready character is a uh, meteorologist who has yeah. studied to be an MD <laughs> and there's constantly being referred to as this, um, kind of mammoth, almost golem like ginger bearded, um, hulking character who is also uh, a, a leader of men and <laughs> a meteorologist who fell into it after not being that interested in being an MD, which is like, okay, I guess that's okay. Which is like a thing that is so odd. Maybe it's, it's stranger than fiction where you're like, did you know a guy or where did that come from? Right. Um, <laughs> right. It feels very of its time though. Again, it's that, it's that like, you know, double fisted kind of man's man, American yeah, kind of the, thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, the <laughs> Campbell, the writer of, of the novella keeps really hammering in these kind and it gets, it doesn't get to the point of, of, of total silliness, but it almost has that kind of like, um, how do I, what is it? What did, it reminded me of almost kind of the side kickery of, you know, superhero comics in the forties where you, you, you could see the audience of the 11 year old boy standing behind the paperback magazine, yeah. you know what I mean? Or the, or the, you know, the spinner rack in, in the in the soda fountain going like, Ooh, a monster is going to kill them from space. Right. You could kind of, you could kind of hear the author like flicking at that little boy going like, and he's a really manly man. Cause he's big and his beard is big and you couldn't knock him down. Cause he's a mountain, you know, it's got a, right. and, and it tapped on that without ruining the story because the story, at least in my experience, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's Nora Ephron, but it is, it really pulled a couple of um, twists to move the plot in a direction that felt surprising, which is odd to somebody who knew exactly how it was going to go. Yeah. Because also I wasn't sure. I, I, I actually thought that it was going to go in a totally, totally kind of diagonal direction from my expectation. 
because it hewed so surprisingly close to the John Carpenter film adaptation that when it went right along with it, I kept going like, huh, actually odd. Um, some, some, um, yeah, uh, some other parallel, some other, go, you go ahead. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I don't, I, I'll hit it now. I'll hit that thought that you just said, because I don't want to fail it later on, which is if you're into the thing, just download a PDF of this thing. You know what yeah. I mean? You don't have to pay any money for it. You can find it in two clicks. Um, it is, and it's maybe a long afternoon read. I'm, yeah. I'm not the fastest scanner when it comes to reading because I, I kind of had a, have a cinematic reader's brain where I kind of like, you know, action figure the characters out in my mind and want to hear them reading the dialogue back to each other. Sure. And so I don't, I don't speed read and you could get this done, you know, in a hammock on a Thursday if you, you know, called in sick to work. No problem. Oh, easily. And easily. it, it. It, it it's it somehow hues incredibly close to the John Carpenter film while also adding such a fa- fascinating context to it. Um, and there, there are also things like McCready is named McCready and he's the same character. Mm-hmm. Blair is named Blair and he's the same character. He's the cantankerous scientist who immediately realizes the existential threat of whatever the thing is and goes apoplectic. And if anything, in this version, he goes from zero to freak out like instantly. (laughs) It's if it's, if if it's anything, it's, it's more aggressive than in the Carpenter film, because once he, once it dawns on him almost kind of off screen, he's just on the ground, like ranting and babbling. And then they're just like, okay, got to get him a shot. And they come in with like some morphine and dose him and deal with him later in a very practical (laughs) way. They're like, well, (laughs) Blair is not happy about this whole alien taking over the earth thing. So we got to put him in a room. And, and there, there are things, including the um, the the blood test scene, mm-hmm. that are line to line exactly. Like McCready essentially paraphrases himself, saying, "Like I know that I'm not one of those things, yeah, but I don't know how many of you are." And the differences uh, are kind of in this uncanny valley where I, you know, you go through the process of reading this novella and, but your brain, like, you know, you, you read the character as described on the page, but then I kind of am having this like cyberpunk dystopian kind of like switching the VCR tracking, like Kurt Russell shoving into the image going like, no, it's yeah. me and I'm wearing a sombrero. I've got a sombrero <laughs> on. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling, I'm calling the chess machine, a cheating bitch. And you know, it were the, there, this, there's a cognitive dissonance that is not in my experience. It was actually kind of um, amusing. And you know, yeah, it's kind of like there's two versions of the same movie but on channel two and channel three, and you're kind of like rubbing between the dials with your old, you know, like wood laminate TV dial. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. On this one, it's in black and white on this one. It's in color. What's going on. Um, so I would say that key differences in, in who goes there are primarily, obviously the level of technology, um, some of the violence, um, the, the end of the, the end is entirely different. Yes. Um, yes. and because John Carpenter is very happy to go with, to, to, and to, to, how do I want to say stick the landing on nihilism in basically every case Absolutely, or, you know, kind yeah. of like <laughs> Viet, Vietnam war era cynicism is kind of where John Carpenter's natural, um, grift generally plays out. Does that sound accurate to you? I, I totally agree. I don't, I think, I think where, again, it's a product of its time. There, there's going to be a happy ending or at very least there's going to be a set ending with a, a novella or a short story or whatever written in this time period for the most part. Whereas Carpenter just couldn't help himself. He was like, look, this is all about changing identities. I, I what what choice do I have? Is <laughs> my answer time? <laughs> yeah. So uh, spoilers for the John Carpenter movie that came out in like 1982. Um, yeah. It you you end with two characters who kind of 
nihilistically decide to die by freezing and then maybe one or both of them is thingified and maybe one of them will end up pulling a gun on the other and it just kind of like you know draws back into the distance as the 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 camp you know burns in flames around them being the last two quote unquote survivors of trying to eliminate this abomination from the south pole and um instead in the in who goes there in the original it's a, a much more like um kind of like a dusting off of the hands well we <laughs> thanks to in thanks to science and the and intuitiveness and and manliness we really solved really sorted that one out thank goodness and, we figured um, it out well done boys <laughs> yeah and it's not qu- it's not quite that boy scouty right. but it it um you know i cuz i will say that the the howard hawks the thing from another world 1951 version is very much in the in the in the pat on your pat pat on the back camp of like well wow we um we we really dodged a bullet there friends right but the there is a there is a ponderous um philosophical bent to the original novel where they they do you know you do get us you do get an awareness that there that these different characters have tears of understanding where Blair the scientist f- totally melts down because he's at the top tier of understanding the implications of this problem yeah. where if this thing really is and in the novella it's described as 2 million years old is how long it's been in the ice yeah. and i think there are some versions where they say 50,000 years old but in either of those iterations the implications of that of something that comes back after being exploded by thermite which actually is one of the details that I believe is contiguous through every single version is yeah. they blow up the ship with thermite to get it out of the ice. And in every single version, they're like, ah, that didn't go too good. <laughs> like, <laughs> was, oh, well. Yeah. I guess yeah, blowing it up with, uh, with late 20th century firecrackers was not the way to preserve a thing that's <laughs> been in the ice for, um, either, uh, 10 or 50 million years. Um, so th- it's, um, it's, the the thermite is the same in every story. The they dogs being a point of violence, danger, and anxiety is a thing in every version of the story. They do not have they they're they're used in essentially the same way in the novella as in the John Carpenter version, which I was shocked by. The yeah. idea that the dogs were a vessel for transmission as well as kind of a um uh, an emotional kind of note to be plucked at the audience to get them into the kind of like heart and viscera of the danger of this thing, you know, that it's kind of like, it's heartless. It's going to replace us and it will kill a dog in an instant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it, the one dog even had like a no, you know, what there was one name, uh, Chinook, I think, which is kind of like a, um, white bullshit Eskimo take yeah. on what to name a dog. Um, but it, it, you know, there are named dogs in the original novella, which um, really plays into how the dogs are taken as such a crucial aspect to the way that the plot of the, the Carpenter version works. They're not addressed. Um, and we're going to get into the thing from another world from 51, like in its own little chunk, but they're not addressed in that movie as much. There's kind of one scene where you see the uh, you see the Frankensteinian monster of the vegetable man in that version outside in silhouette, kind of fighting like nine dogs, yeah. but everything's kind of camera obscura, kind of just black and white, like, oh, what's going on out in the snow? And then that's pretty much mostly it. And then you realize via thanks to science with an exclamation point that um, right. it's like using the blood that it got off of the dogs to um, kind of regenerate itself a la like a green magic card. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it doesn't have the depth of plot and, and um, emotional stakes as it does in every other version. But I was, you know, the dogs, the, the use of actual science as being crucial in every case. And in multiple cases, it being, 
you know, blood science that can determine where the, where the monster is. That being, that being in every uh, version has really surprised me. I don't, you know what? It, it leads me to try to get to the crux of this way earlier than I was anticipating. <laughs> because I, as a listener to this show, I can rely on you, I know, Phil, to kind of to, to put on your one of your literary hats and go like, what is the what is the through line through these? And I'm not saying we have to like crack that nut in this instance, but it, it, if if I had like a mission statement for this show, one of them certainly is like say a bunch of dumb shit that might be funny and then accidentally maybe stumble in a dark room on, you know, like a metathesis about a subject. And I, I've, I've kind of kicked over a couple in the dark attic of this subject, but I, I haven't quite, um, uh, I haven't quite open, opened it up and triple underlined exactly. It's like, ah, the thing represents capitalism. Right. Um, and I was, I was, I was, I was wondering if there are, nodes of thought that jump to you about when you align at least the novella and the John Carpenter version and anything else in the thing of earth that, that crosses your mind, what kind of snaps to grid and you go like, well, this is consistently what this, what this is on a a metatextual level. Is there something there that, that jumps out to you? I'm going to push you out on the plank first. It it sounds like cheating. It sounds like totally cheating, but it's the other it's it's that's, that's the thing that it all comes, you know, you've got the fifties, both the thirties, the original and the fifties from what little I know of it. uh, But based on, you know, synopses and stuff like that, there's, it's a pretty standard, uh, 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 what pod people kind of like, they're all communists mm-hmm. and they could be communists yeah. can look like you and they could, they could talk like you one minute. They're a good, hardworking American. And the next they're commies and better, better yes. dead than red, you know? And yes, you know, and uh, I don't know how well the timeline works out for the, I don't know in the late thirties was, was uh, red scare stuff, a big thing in America. I'm not familiar with yeah, that. Well, I mean, <sighs> Essentially, there was there was communist anxiety since at least the twenties because you've got like mm-hmm. the you know like the Sacco and what's the what's the other Sacco I'm gonna say Sacco and Sacco and Vincetti or is because you you have the like you know you have that actual early twentieth century era. What's up, you greasy dogs? This is Professor Marmalade coming at you dry and sneezy from underneath the old T and L hot dogs on High Street in Morgantown, West Virginia. I'm gonna drop some 1920s Red Scare knowledge on your juicy asses, so here we go. During the Red Scare of 1919-1920, many in the United States feared recent immigrants and dissidents, particularly those who embraced communist, socialist, or anarchist ideology. The causes of the Red Scare included Red Scare headlines and World War I, which led many to embrace strong nationalistic and anti-immigrant sympathies. The Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which led many to fear that immigrants, particularly from Russia, Southern Europe, and Eastern Europe, intended to overthrow the United States government. The end of World War I, which caused production needs to decline and unemployment to rise. Many workers joined labor unions. Labor strikes, including the Boston police strike in September 1919, contributed to fears that radicals intended to spark a revolution. Self-proclaimed anarchists mailing bombs to prominent Americans, including United States Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer and United States Supreme Court Associate Justice, and former Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. So by 1938 Americans, and many throughout the world had intense fear and hatred of communism and anything that could be associated with it, whether those fears were founded or not. Communism and communists, real or imagined, have been used ever since by the right wing as a hollow boogeyman, a straw man devil that allows them to rationalize all sorts of corrupt and violent behavior because, to some audience, Anything is justifiable if it has a chance of saving us from going red. Put that in your opium pipe and smoke it, you filthy gobstoppers. Professor Marmalade out. The contiguous concern is is otherness, and that that and yeah. that and and specifically otherness as contagion, right? Which does it does. Well, and snap that's just to what gr- I was going to say. I think it, it it's impossible to ignore. Again, I don't know how perfectly at times out but it's impossible to ignore that john carpenter's the thing is was made in 1982 uh Mm -hmm. and had that focus on blood blood tests that sort of thing and when we're dealing with the the aids crisis right after that or right at the beginning of that i don't know the exact timing 
Um, it's 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 early AIDS crisis, and yeah, I I actually have I'm don't know if you were uh, that that certainly has come up in critique of totally unintentionally. John Carpenter essentially made an yeah. AIDS anxiety movie, um, and 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 that is very fascinating because that. <laughs> The testing the blood, you know what I mean? He took it exactly from a story from, what is the math there? Basically like 45 years prior. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he took the plot right, device exactly. of testing the blood from 40 years prior to AIDS being a virus that existed on planet Earth. And so obviously he's yeah. not like <laughs> grabbing things out of the headlines. But, yeah. but you know, when you, when you take profound themes and inject them into... Um, energetic examples, you will create multifaceted metaphors that will do the job of describing real terrifying shit that's going on in your actual day to day, even if it was an idea that came around 45 years earlier, because you were, you were worried about how people were thinking either too much or not enough about communism, but uh, right. And, and, And to to your previous point, it would have been absolutely appropriate to contextualize John W. Campbell Jr.'s anxiety as being one about communism. I'm not going to make an Mm. A to B there, but there there's probably a paper that could be written there that could posit that. Right. Your grad grad cinema studies, cinema studies student could probably um, make some hay out of it. I'm not saying it's definitely true but you are living in an era in 1938 where ideas becoming viral and turning your neighbor or the neighbor in the next country or the neighbor in the next county into an unrecognizable villain who will try to take over your world is a completely appropriate anxiety <laughs> i mean um, yeah. if anything yeah. if anything 1938 is a height of of ideas becoming viral and dangerous because people are worried about, you know, people have the, they have the anxiety about like, well, we could have another French revolution. We could have another Russian revolution. No problemo. And it looks like the Germans are having one right now. Right. And, and Germans look like me, middle, middle-class American person. And, and they, they got some weird ideas about how to behave. And then all of the Germans neighbors, they've got some other weird ideas about how to behave. And all of those, those are genuinely as like Dan Harmon from hardcore history says, they are viral ideas. Like communism and fascism were spread in a way that they did infect Nations, governments, communities, militaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's so fascinating because we have lived in this, um, how do I want to say it? Like, um, kind of the, the, the slowly changing dominant culture in the United States has been so static, uh, so, and so well organized as to being anti-communist for so long. Oh, absolutely. That that while still having totally lost the plot as to why, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a like a like a doddering old man that knows that he's supposed to go outside at 4 p.m. every day, but he has no fucking clue why. Right. <laughs> and, but, right. but you just do it because that's because you're Tom and you go outside at four o'clock every day. Because that's you what you do. No re- yeah. You have no recollection why. And right. um, America has kind of gotten to that point with um, with with extreme leftism and communism. So we know we don't like it, but we don't remember yeah. why we were upset about it. <laughs> and well, it's 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 why like everyone's you know everyone's marveling over like oh hey we have this far right conservative on and it was like ask them to define wokeness they can't do it and I'm like this is not new this is not ask yeah, them to but... define socialism ask them to define communism ask them to define anarchy uh, like economic anarchy they can't do it like they, it's they've never been able to do it it's not about like thoughtfulness <laughs> it's they don't know it is it is it is really a and that's you know and we don't this is going to be an episode that's going to annoy Gavin because Gavin really makes me avoid being uh, a left-wing lunatic. But, <laughs> I'm, but I'm not going to be he's able to not on, with that. But he's not on the show today, motherfuckers. But the, but the other otherness and the the de- develop whipping otherness up into a frenzy 
that makes you reify the examples of the 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 anxieties of the dominant culture is really a it's a really a right wing kind of piece of business yeah. and that's whether you're in america or mexico or spain or france or wherever of def defining the idea that there is an internalized other in in the bomb shelter with you yeah. in the suburban neighbor with you if you're rod serling if you're um if you're just the american people and you see somebody that dresses weird or you can't tell whether they're a boy or a girl or they want you to call them a weird pronoun or they're you know chopping chopping up babies at some weird factory down the street or whatever it is you think that they're doing right. the 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 pushing them making sure that those other people are marginalized and that you point a kind of theoretical flamethrower at them to keep your headquarters safe for the majority is it's always a piece of right wing business. It's really never the left wing. That's like, we got to get true. those weirdos out of here. The left wing is always the fucking weirdos. And it's not an American thing. It's just the Americans have created a very, um, energetic culture of doing it that looks crazy even to the rest of the world. Right. Um, <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Energetic. Let's say that. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to say my hot takes in a, in a consumable fashion. You're a born so that diplomat. I, 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 which I did. I, <laughs> that's a, that's a good one, Phil. Like, thank you. That's, yeah. Always how I have been portrayed in the media. It's is true. It's true. Always pulling my punches and uniting, uniting, uh, I, <laughs> uniting all of the misaligned parties. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well I, as we could, we could rant about, um, right-wing paranoia all day, but the, the, the thing about it is it really does, um, it really does snowball out of kind of capital O otherness, which is, which is the essential thread that goes through all of these versions of who goes there and every single version of the thing. If anything, did, I'm sure you must have seen, well, I could be wrong, the 2011 prequel sequel thing that was based did, off of John yeah. Carpenter's. Which, what the hell did you think about that? <laughs> because I, I didn't prep, I didn't say we were going to talk about that, but I, I, you know, there's always surprises on the show. I, I actually saw that one in the theaters. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember. So did I. Yeah, it, I, I remember it having uh, Ramona from uh, 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 Scott Pilgrim in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's got haircuts. She, yeah, she she was wearing a wig, right? Uh, yeah, that had and to be uh, wig, right? I remember, I remember that was kind of prime time, which we're still in, to be fair. But it was like way more overt in those days, where that was like, okay, a thing happened in this classic movie and we've got to show you how it happened. So here's the part where the two guys get melded together in the process. And it's, and it just didn't, it was interesting, but not very satisfying. And they wanted to use all the CGI, but one of the reasons uh -huh. that John Carpenter's, the thing has survived so long and is so well loved is because of the practical effects, which feels like a wasted opportunity to me. Yeah. Um, which, which I know is an, it's a really an old uncle, uh, it's an old uncle drum that we really bang on our show. Yeah. Kind of a little cliche, but, um, I will tell you, if you watch John Carpenter's, the thing at home on your, you know, 42 inch TV and you're like, those practical effects look kind of silly. Well, one, shut the fuck up. And two, right, yeah. First off, back off. And two, <laughs> first of all, step the fuck back, man, because I am feeling a little bit pressured. And two, um, I, I went and saw it at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood oh, when wow. I was living in Los Angeles. And I have to tell you, I was not prepared for the full big cinema version of the effects having already seen the film mm -hmm. 45 fucking times i mean it's in my top three movies like just total and and the uh, the the scare scenes are so visually overwhelming and well acted and abrupt that the Rob, you know the kind of wrinkles that you can see where rob bodden has definitely made an object 
uh, you know, and that the lighting is maybe a little bit too crisp on the edges of that jagged piece of flesh. All of that is fucking out the window. You are not <laughs> having, you, it is, you are, you are two hands gripping that hard seat arm, lifting your ass up in the air, trying to push away from the terrifying monster on the screen. You are, you are in Kurt Russell's pants where you always expected you would finally be going like, holy shit, get that fucking thing away from me. It is, <laughs> it is, there is no, um, nuanced critique of the production design going on in the cinema version. So if you have a chance to, for some reason to see a 35 or some kind of weird restored 4k bullshit version of the 1982's, the thing in a theater mm. setting, you do it. It is nuts. I was uh, not anticipating it. I was like, this is going to be good. And it was yeah. way more than I was, I, uh, uh, way more than I was even prepared wonderful. for. I got to look into that. That's great. 100,000 years ago it found its way into our galaxy trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica it could not escape now the men of station 4 have made a monumental discovery an alien creature had frozen but not to death. And man... It isn't Benning! ...is the warmest place to hide. And it is a movie that, because of its status, it does get played. Those 35 prints, mm -hmm. they do run around. So it is not an impossible task. Even if, You don't have to be living in Hollywood to some somehow find a way to go watch the thing in a, a proper big screen format. I, I love, and, and I'm right there with you. I mean, the thing is easily in my top three horror films of all time, probably in my top five films of all time. And mm -hmm. it was one of those things that me and my wife, actually, we don't, we don't really fight. We don't argue or anything like we, we, you know, disagree from time to time, like any couple would, but, but, uh, we don't, we don't hold grudges. We're both too old for that shit. And, and, and we're just kind of done with that kind of <laughs> uh -huh. squabbling. I, I say that now and I'm going to walk out into the living room. She's gonna be like, who's this bitch? I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> but in any case, it, the, one of the, if any, anytime someone describes one of their partners being mad at them and say, uh -huh. Oh, she got pissed at me over something. And, and, but we all know what that's like. Am I right? And everyone thinks everyone who's listening right now is thinking back to that time that you, we all have that moment. Mine, one of my only ones with my wife was over John Carpenter's the thing. <laughs> oh, really? I, yes. I, now we, the inquiring minds must, <laughs> what, how, how did that play out? What I was getting at is if I have to go into a movie theater, it will be alone. Uh, but it, it's, it's because my, my wife was raised very evangelical, very, very religious uh -huh, okay. and, uh, and, and dropped all that by the wayside by the time that I, I, I met her. Um, but, one of the things that had kind of stuck with her was horror movies. Cause there is this, there is this evangelical thing where it's not enough yeah, for a yeah, horror yeah. movie just to be scary or to maybe have some blasphemous imagery. There is this sense with a lot of them that like the devil is in this and you're exposing <laughs> yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. That you're opening a door or a window. You're in, it's kind of like playing with a Ouija board anytime you're, right. you're watching a horror movie. Right. Yeah. So she had never seen really any horror films growing up and uh, certainly not on the level that I had. And, and a big part of it is, is I remember, and I'm sure you were the same way because when you're a kid and you'd go to the blockbuster or whatever the local video rental place was, and you go into the horror section where you're not allowed to rent any of those movies but the cover art scared you shitless. It scared the hell <laughs> yes. out of you. But then when you saw it later, when you were a little older, you're like, this sucks. Like full moon entertainment. What the hell? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Oh, full moon. I, I have to I have to eventually have a whole full moon, full moon thing, but go ahead. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but but the, and that was kind of her whole life. Like they, they, everyone around her had never seen these movies, but they knew they were scary, and so they would just kind of build them up bigger in their head than they even were. Um, and so she literally, the I think the year we met, she had seen Hereditary of all things, uh, which is intense for even yeah, horror sure. fanatics. Uh, and she found that she really liked it. Uh, she went that okay. Was, really fucking good and so we we meet we start dating and i'm like well i'm kind of a horror nerd and she's like that's good because i'd like to learn more about that the first movie we watched together was alien and uh she wow, loved it okay. to the point that we went out and got an orange cat and named it jonesy so <laughs> like interesting and, our, yeah. and his little sister big, is ripley big. like we have two cats and they're you know it's like and then nice. so i'm like okay uh, and in October, we watch nothing but horror films. And, and and she has so much fun with it because some sometimes they're schlocky and fun. Sometimes she's like, well, that was shitty. Why, why was I scared of that? Um, and sometimes they're masterpieces, like horror tends to be. It's, it's they, Horror tends to be like a masterpiece or absolute garbage. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, and, for and sure. There's there's very little in between. Uh, and, and so we'll watch nothing but horror films. And one night I'm like, okay, we're going to watch the thing. This is one of my favorite horror films of all time alien might be the only one that like beats it out for like just uh-huh. overall fanaticism for me. And I, and I did what I try never to do, uh, uh but I just built it up and built it up and built it up, uh, because I'm an idiot. And, uh, and that, and then, so we watch it and very early on, she gets real quiet and she has this <laughs> look on her face, like this just kind of, I, I, I like, like someone texted her during the movie and said, he's cheating and here's the proof. And she doesn't want to get into it until the <laughs> film's over. And wow. I'm like, I don't know why I'm in trouble, but I know I'm in trouble. Uh-huh. And uh, so the movie ends and I'm like, so what you think? And she goes off on this tirade saying like, I understand that this means a lot to you and this movie was great to you and da, 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 and everything. And, and, but, and, and, but, but some things are unnecessary. Some things aren't necessary. And it was the dogs. <laughs> oh, she, she's of a course. dog fanatic. She is, of she is course, a of dog person. I, I, I was, I was grasping and grasping going, what is, where is the terrible demonic blasphemy in this movie about like, 10 men in the snow. I'm like, what right. is it? Right. Okay. I was yeah. like, how did this go too far? But she is a dog person. She was, she, she had a dog. Of course. Yeah. yeah. She had a dog who died years ago and she still chokes up thinking about that dog. Like she is a well, dog I'll, person. I, yeah, of course. I mean, so, <clears throat> my, you know, I, yeah, my, a dog was my, my second pet and I'm not a dog person. Yeah. I, you know, I'm famously now a cat person, but yeah, I'm a um, cat person too. Yeah. Under under the right circumstances, I, I, I dogs to me are kind of like kids. Is I love them, but I want them to go home after they're done playing. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and stay in the night. I I love them, but they just shit everywhere, and like you go shit somewhere else. Uh, but yeah. and but I do. I can really like I'm as much as anybody can have that profound like. Oh, the dog is jumping on its owner because he got home from the <laughs> Marines after two years. You know, it gets me too. I'm, you know, cat persons, cat people can still, you know, ha- enjoy good things. And 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 one of the one of the reasons that you never vacuum up the use of the dogs in your thing story uh-huh. is because it is such a power drill down to the boiling magma of emotion in the audience. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed part one of Phil and I's cyclopean perambulation through the Thingiverse. We really enjoyed recording it. I'm sorry this week's episode was a couple days late. I came down with a wild chest cold, which you might be able to... Uh, catch from hearing me right now, and it prevented me from doing even sit-down work, if you can believe it. And I hope you'll be joining us for part two and the regularly scheduled monstrosities coming up after that. Because we didn't get to it in the first half, please do check out Pixel Lit and their show about the often terrible, sometimes oddly compelling novelizations of your favorite video games. As well as Phil directly, he is the Conquista Dork, 
out there on the Webiverse. That's the Conquistador, but with a K on the end, because nerd. All right, catch you next time. Hess out.